I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. Procter & Gamble and Fifth Third Bank reported quarterly earnings today. Tonight we're diving into the numbers. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec. Earnings season is underway. Two of Cincinnati's largest employers released their quarterly earnings today. P&G, Fifth Third Bank. Joining me now is Brian James, a certified financial planner on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, we don't usually cover individual stocks, but these two companies account for about 17,000 employees locally. So th- this is big news and, and mixed, but overall pretty good results. Yeah, and these, these are there's, there's a lot of people within the sound of our voices here this evening that uh, are uh, attuned to this news. So yeah, we don't usually get into individual companies that much, but uh, in this case, uh, obviously some, some big employers here locally. So P&G employs about 10,000 people here in Cincinnati. They're the seventh largest employer and fifth third is the 10th largest employer here in Cincinnati with about uh, 7,000 incidentally Kroger is the largest with 18,000 so in any case lots of people out there on their way home so good stories um, Procter & Gamble uh, net sales up seven percent uh, to just under 19 billion dollars the consensus forecast was a little over 18 so remember what we look for here there's the forecast and then there's what actually happens so well, and that, those are those are big numbers because we're we're coming out of a pandemic. This is a big company anyway, so any increase in sales is appreciated. This is a half a billion dollars. This is five hundred million dollars increase. That's a that's a big number, and and to me, it's a pretty big surprise. How are the earnings? Yeah, it's good because they we're, we're all buying more stuff now. Earnings actually fell three percent to a buck thirteen a share. So it, you want to look at that and go, okay, great, we sold a bunch more stuff, but how did we actually earn yeah. less by selling more stuff? Answer is the same thing we've been spitting into these microphones for at least a year now. It's all supply chain related. We'll, we'll come back to that here in a second. But uh, in, in terms of going forward, they're predicting sales growth of two to four percent. Uh, and that's compared with the last year's, uh, the fiscal year's 6% growth uh, ranges there. So they are predicting a little bit of uh, of a back off there. Well, and and I'm sure you're getting these questions also. I, I'm hearing it from investors all over the place. It, craziness coming out of, out of Washington. You know, what's going on with the pandemic? There's a lot of things to be concerned about. But, you know, yet the stock market keeps reaching for new levels. Steve, Brian, how can that happen? And and my answer is, well, you've got to separate the political issues from the data. And, and you know, just like in, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In the stock market, it's earnings, earnings, earnings. And and that's what we're seeing is, is we're seeing companies continue to grow and maybe some short-term issues, some headwinds here with, with uh, supply chain. But whenever you see that big of a jump in revenues – that's a pretty big deal. And I, I, I look at this as a win. How do you see it? Yeah, it, it's definitely a win. It's a sign of a healthy economy. Companies are out there making products and selling them for more than uh, than they than it cost to make them in the first place. That's the definition of a profit. However, the profits aren't as wide as they have been. So uh, CEO David Taylor of Procter Gamble is, is citing concerns about commodities and cost pressures having gone up. Now, commodities, remember, that's, that's basically in his world, that's basically the raw materials, the stuff that they buy to go make the soap and the, the paper towels and the diapers and all that other stuff. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with transportation. It's tough to get that stuff. The buyers are there. This is not an issue. We're in a strong economy, so the buyers are there. Uh, it's not an issue of demand dropping through the floor. It's more of an issue of uh, of being able to get all this stuff there. So P&G had predicted uh, back in July they thought they were going to need about $1.9 billion 
in uh, transportation and raw materials expenses, they, which was already a high number. They were anticipating this. Now, yeah, what has big. come out very recently is actually $2.1 billion. That's yeah. We're a few months into the future, a couple hundred million more than what even P&G thought. Well, and, and their shipping costs alone were up $200 million. I mean, they, you know, this is, this is a big increase in cost. But, you know, again, I keep coming back to a half a billion dollar increase in revenues. That should make the stock go up. Yes? Yes, absolutely it should. It, it should. It, it really but it should, but, but it, it doesn't. Didn't. Yes, yeah, exactly. It doesn't. Because the market the market only cares about, does not care about what did you do, right? That the earnings announcements come out, and that's what we did in the past. The market doesn't care about that. That was priced in months and quarters ago. What the market cares about is what do we think is going to go from here forward? And when David Taylor has to come out and say, hey, it's expensive to haul a truckload of whatever the goop is that they put into soap across the country so we can make it, <laughs> then that's going to snowball. And we know that there's going to be some headwinds for profitability. That does not mean, that does not portend, you know, we don't have toes over the cliff or anything like that. Just says it's not going to be as easy as it yeah. has been. And P&G is at an all-time high of 140 bucks, actually down 1.5% today. And that's what we're saying. The market's looking at the impression it got from what David Taylor thinks of the future. Well, and, and that's, I think, what confuses a lot of people is, well, wait a second, you know, the, the stock, I think, has been strong, hasn't it, Steve? Yes, it has been. And, and you know, there's an old adage on, on Wall Street of uh, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. So this is old news when it comes out uh, to a lot of investors. Stocks tend to run six, maybe nine months ahead of whatever is going on in that particular company or in the economy, if you're looking at the overall stock market and indexes. So, yeah, th- these uh, these numbers, um, they were just posted today, but analysts have been uh, taking a look at, at Procter & Gamble and, and every company that's publicly traded for quite some time, and, and there's a good guess of which uh, direction that, uh, that they're going. And, and you know, I, I think the future is good. I just think we have to take a hard look at what the Federal Reserve is calling transitory because these bottlenecks, these shipping delays, they're not going away anytime soon from what I can gather. Yeah, and, and I would tend to agree with that. I feel like we've been saying that for, for over a year now. The, the, the primary causes of these delays are, are, are a lot of it has to do with logistics. Yeah. Ships are stuck in the Los Angeles Harbor, literally sitting out there because they can't find enough workers on the docks to, to, to offload and, uh, and move them on. So that, that at some point has to, has to, has to let go. Because at some point, uh, you know, we, we, the, the workers will need to come in and do their jobs and earn their own money to, to ha- handle their own families and so forth. Uh, so that still feels like it should be transitory. But, you know, I, I, the, the word that keeps popping in my mind is permeary, meaning it's we think it's temporary, but it's kind of permanent-ish. <laughs> I, like I don't uh, think it's going to stay forever, but it's yeah. still, we're beyond a little temporary well, at this point. The bottom line is supply chain issues are here for quite some time. And, and you know, the companies have to roll with the punches. Procter & Gamble to, to offset freight and transportation expenses. They're letting online retailers use its warehouses as distribution centers. The stock is doing fairly well. P&G stock down about 1.6 over the past year, but it's up 65% over the past five years. You're listening to Simply Bunny on 55KRC, and we're talking about local companies uh, with earnings uh, uh, reports coming out recently. And um, Brian, uh, Fifth Third Bank, big employer again uh, locally, um, they've had their hits and misses, uh, as reported today also, haven't they? Right. So uh, Fifth Third also reported earnings, and uh, they came out at $0.94 cents a share. The estimate there was 91 So on one hand, remember, that's what we like. We, the, the estimates come out, here's what we think they're going to do, and then the question is whether they beat it or not, and they did beat it by $0.03 cents a share. Net income was up 22% to $684 million. And obviously, these are all these are all good. So where's this coming from? Well, they've, they've gotten some mixed results with loans. 
Uh, non-performing loans, or that, that's fancy bank talk for uh, customers who don't pay their loans off. Uh, those non-performing loans are now only a half percent of their total loan book. That's an improvement from uh, it was 0.58%. So we get into minuscule numbers here, but this is truly what moves the market. Uh, so that's an improvement over the prior quarter for that particular figure. Total loans dropped about 1%, commercial loans dropping about 2%, which was kind of which is a little bit uh, interesting because uh, you know you want to look at that and, th- and think that commercial loan business might be dropping off, uh, but that's not really the case. This is more coming from a 36% decline in those PPP loans that are left over from the 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 the, uh, the actions that the the Congress took uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, you know, you know what I look at here. It's it's almost like how can you not make money if you own a casino in today's banking environment? I mean, I don't know what you're getting on on your money market or savings accounts, but one tenth of one percent is about it. Yet, yet the banks are paying you one tenth of one percent, but they're going out and lending the money that you just put on deposit at two and a half to four percent for car loans and mortgages and, and things like that. That's a heck of a spread. I, I mean, that's where a bank earns their money. And, and these would seem to me to be pretty darn good times for banks. You would think, you would think. Uh, I, I do remember, you know, when I first got into this uh, career, this is the late 90s, uh, I remember you could open up a money market account and get 6%. And you couldn't <laughs> give those away because people said, don't waste my time with 6%. I'm getting 50% in these sexy new internet stocks like yeah. Yahoo and yeah. all those companies that, uh, you know. <laughs> that was when? Late 90s? This was late 90s. Yeah. Dating myself know, a little bit We, we here, know what happened to internet stocks for at least a couple of years back Changed then. a little bit after yeah. those, right? Yeah. But, but you couldn't give that right away, even though it was yeah. 6%. Yeah. Hey, and, and, you know, I think that the interest rates are going to go up. Um, the Federal Reserve has been pretty, um, pretty darn uh, transparent about uh, we're going to stop buying $120 billion every month to keep interest rates down of government securities and probably one, possibly two interest rate increases next year. But the, the frustrating part is the Federal Reserve will raise the rates that they that they can adjust. But banks don't seem to do it as quickly. It's almost like when you go to the gas pump, prices go up real quick, but they don't come down real quick. Steve, I was in the room when the leader of a local bank said, we will not be the first bank to raise deposit rates. <laughs> There's No bank is going to want to have to give that up. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing to me. Well, you know, the short, short version is Fifth Third Bank, good, solid local employer, good, solid local bank. Um, but they did also announce that they're going to be closing some branches. Yeah, so uh, the nine branch closing were, were announced earlier this week. Six of those are in Kroger Bank March. Now, these are all local in the greater Cincinnati area. So when when you're a bank that's kind of stuck with the spread that you can make and you have to increase profits to keep the, the, to, to keep the analysts and the market happy, well, then you're going to have to reduce expense, and that's simply what Fifth Third is doing. I'm, I don't know about you, Steve, but I haven't seen the inside of a bank branch in a very, very, very long time because I can do it all on my phone. It's amazing uh, the, the way technology has changed that industry. My older son lives in Ann Arbor. He still banks with a local credit union here, never having set foot in the place for years. I mean, they've been up there five or six years, uh, and that's the only account that he uses. So, yeah, there there really is no need for brick and mortar with a whole bunch of people. But, you know, for old guys like me, I still walk in. I still like to say hi to people, and that's just the way it's going to probably uh, going to probably continue. Um, fifth, the fifth third stock, it, it's been a good performer. It's up about 90 percent over the past year. I I think I would rank that as a good performer and more than doubled over the past five years. Here's the Simply Money point. P&G and Fifth Third, they provide a mixed results this quarter, but they definitely are adapting to the new economy.
Bitcoin exchange-traded funds are hitting the market this week. Does that make cryptocurrency a more responsible speculation? Joining me now is Brian James, a certified financial plan on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, Bitcoin, I mean, everybody's heard of it, but very few people know how to invest in it. And a lot of people have been asking about, can we get an ETF with Bitcoin? Well, that day's finally here, isn't it? Kind of. It's kind of here. So let, let's let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, uh, the, the, real quick on just what grip Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is. These are literally uh, investments you can make in things that, that other people will treat as legal tender, right? So you can exchange this for goods and services, so on and so forth. Now, that is its purported intent. It has been treated like a speculative asset since the day it was uh, since the day it was introduced. Nobody's going to Kroger and paying with for the groceries with Bitcoin. Um, on top of that, uh, so so what we have today, the big announcement is that you can now own uh, something called an exchange traded fund or an ETF. We love ETFs. You can buy an ETF oh, yeah. that will cover any yeah. kind of investment under the sun. Uh, the S and P five hundred stocks, bonds, so on and so forth. There has never been one that deals in crypto. So they own they own Bitcoin. Correct. Right? There is one out there. Well, uh, kind yeah, of correct. Yeah, not uh, quite. Let me let me backtrack yeah, there. I'm speaking yeah. too quickly. Now, so uh, what this thing does is uh, it it's an, it it's, does not own actual Bitcoin. It is backed by the futures. You are investing in futures tied to the cryptocurrency. So, in other words, it's just a derivative. You are an arm's length or multiple <laughs> arm's lengths away from actually owning Bitcoin. You're not going to have a digital wallet. You're not going right, to have right. a computer so, mining so, and all that hang stuff. Hang on a second. So if you buy a gold ETF, generally that exchange-traded fund owns gold. So if you invest you know, $100,000, $10,000, you've got that, that much worth of gold represented inside the ETF. You're telling me Bitcoin ETFs. No, they don't own the, the they Bitcoin do not, at all. They do not. This is the only one in existence, first of all. There's no there's no mutual fund or any other kind of exchange-traded fund where it's, a, where it's a thing that owns other things, like we think of mutual yeah. funds. This is the only one in existence, and it does not own actual uh, Bitcoin. So and on the gold side, since you brought that up, that's where you, you can own uh, ETFs and things that, have, uh, that own derivatives of gold, but you can also own ETFs that actually behind them somewhere own actual physical gold that is being stored somewhere. Gold has a long trading history. We can always look at the pricing history and how it has moved up and down. Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies simply don't. Well, and I looked into this a little bit. Well, why not? Yeah, I mean, that's a natural question. If you're going to have an ETF that that represents Bitcoin, why can't it own it? And, and what I learned is the Securities Exchange Commission, they won't allow actual Bitcoin to be held by an ETF or a mutual fund. Why? Because there are no regulations. Exactly. So wouldn't you think the SEC would kind of get in there and develop regulations on, well, on trading? They, they don't seem interested. I think that's where, well, because I, mean, I think it's, it's, just, it's the Wild West right now. I, I don't is. see a future yeah. where it will forever be unregulated. It's just not possible. I mean, one of the main attractions of this is it's a way that you can, quote unquote, fairly deal with other people, yeah. but keep your transactions private. And to me, that just screams begs for regulation at some point, because if I can do things in these dark pools of money and pay for things, well, I'm sure there's a lot going on there uh, other than, you know, oh, yeah. uh, an 18 year old kid buying a, a thousandth of a share of Bitcoin and, and, and on you, Robinhood. And you hear about these things. We talked about these things where you buy actual Bitcoin through exchanges and then all of a sudden you can't get access because, you know, whoever started the exchange forgot the password or, or, or it got or, hacked or it got and stolen. the money got stolen. Exactly. exactly. So, you know, stay tuned. 
There are still some issues with with Bitcoin. It's not something I take real seriously as an investment, but I I have a hard time telling somebody you shouldn't do it if they just double their money in it. You know, so it's put it in the category it should be in, which is a speculation. If you're going to take a few bucks and go down to the casino and roll some dice, that's in my opinion, that's how you should treat Bitcoin. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a speculative asset. I'll tell you what, Steve, I would not want to own it when they start regulating it. Uh, Yeah, because I can't uh, that's going to suck a lot out of the air out of the blue. Now, at the same time, if you are a speculative investor and that big, scary announcement comes out, then you might say, hey, Bitcoin is getting beaten to death. Maybe it's the time to buy it because the initial panic. But speculation is just speculation. It's for fun only. Uh, it does, the speculation doesn't really have a plan, uh, a part of a, of a serious of retirement a financial plan. plan exactly. For funsies only. Yeah. Well, let's talk about retirement a little bit. And, and there are a lot of people, and the numbers really bear this out, that as they get to the retirement decision or just post-retirement, they're thinking of moving to a different part of the country. There are some key considerations you, I, I think everybody should make before they, they pull the trigger. Brian, I saw this with my own father. I, I mean, I lost my mom when she was 50, so he, he never remarried. And when he retired, he said, I'm going to Florida. It's warm down there. That's what the rich people do. He was far from being rich. And it was a decision he regretted and, and uh, actually moved back to where he used to live. I, I, I mean, this is something a lot of people, as they go into retirement, it, it's a big dream to move and, and you know, not always the right right move for you to make. Yep. So about 3 million Americans do this every single year. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, those are all the people who said they were going to do it. So really, uh, surveys have shown that about two-thirds of retirees say they're probably going to move at least once during retirement. But realistically, only about a third, maybe a little less than a third, actually pull the trigger within that within a 12-year period there. So now here's what I see, though. Maybe tell me if you see this. Yeah. Uh, what I'm seeing now here in the greater Cincinnati area, first of all, you can move interstate into three states and still be in the greater Cincinnati area. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. We have to have to have that caveat. But what I'm seeing a lot talking to my clients is uh, there are people who are moving just within that area because you can be in a subdivision and get sick of that, but Mm -hmm. you don't have to go too far in this area to to buy a bunch of land. What I'm seeing here is people have made a lot of money in the market. It has cooperated tenfold, obviously, despite all this chaos, and people are getting more and more confident about the heck with it. I do want to buy that 50 acres out in the middle of nowhere in Indiana or Kentucky or whatever, and I do want to have a house out there that I can go kind of run away to. I'm speaking purely anecdotally in the past month i've had that conversation three times so there is the intent out there but it's not necessarily moving to florida well and and all you have to do is look at zillow to to, if you haven't by the way looked at zillow take a look at your house i I mean it's just incredible what home prices have done and you know that that brings up the, the 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 whole issue of hey i can really cash in i can't believe my house is worth this much but um where are you gonna move yeah, you know, I think the prices of the houses that you're going to be buying into, they're going to be up quite a bit. I'll tell you how my uh, my son's in-laws uh, handled this. They live in Phoenix, which has been the, the fastest growing, uh, uh, price, uh, highest price increasing area of the country. And they cashed out of their house. They they, they were ready to downsize. But, uh, you know, they, they sold a house that couldn't sell for 640000 two years ago. They sold it for 960000 So they moved into their trailer. <laughs> they they literally moved into a class C motorhome, which I don't know, twenty by ten, maybe going from four thousand. Let's 000. see how much we really like well, each other, honey. I mean, let's let's just let's just say the the wife is kind of done with this experiment. Okay, so they're going to move someplace else, but their whole concept is okay. Let's let's buy later on when this market settles down, and it's taking a while to settle down. Here here's a simply money point: before you relocate permanently in retirement, give it a test run.
Every week we crack open the Allworth mailbag. We answer the questions you send us every week at ask simply money at allworthfinancial.com. Our first question tonight is from Peter in Newport. I have a traditional retirement with my company that will change over to a cash balance retirement on January 1st of next year. Should I keep the money with my company or should I move it out? Man, start off with a tough one. These, I know. These, yeah, these are. This is not uh, the norm, right? This is not something that everyone has or needs. No, but a lot of people are getting these letters from their employer, and it's becoming more and more common. It, it's well. First of all, let's talk about what a cash balance plan is. Um, I'm going to throw a phrase called defined benefit plans. That's mm-hmm. a pension plan, okay? Yeah. So defined benefit Social security means, is a defined benefit yeah, plan as well. Yeah. The money you receive from whoever has the plan is defined. It's the same every month as opposed to a 401k where it's a defined contribution. You're putting your money into the plan. You know the amount going in. You have no idea what you're pulling out of it down, down the road. So right. this is a type of pension plan, and they're becoming more and more popular. And I'll tell you why, because it's a better deal for the owner. I mean, there are strict rules on how these pension plans operate as there should be. Um, People are depending on this money in in retirement. So it's good for the owners. Um, They can kind of load up and and bank a lot of money into their plan that they can't with other types of plans. In a short amount of time, right? Very short amount of time. If you own a business or you know someone who's owned a business, what you know is that they have probably reinvested much of what they've made on growing that business through the years. So a lot of these business owners, right, they get close to the age of retirement and they realize, I don't have a lot in retirement savings. This is a way for them to put a bunch of money in a short amount of time into Mm -hmm. a retirement vehicle. But they also put it in your account, which is the nice part. Now, the money that the employer puts in, that may and probably does have something called a vesting schedule. In other words, when is their money now my money? I see it on my statement, but it's not necessarily yours until a certain number of years, and three years seems to be pretty standard. So if you're thinking of leaving the plan, any money that the employer gave you that's been in there less than three years ain't going to go with you. You know, your own money is always vested. Any money you put into the plan uh, is is always vested. But on these, it's really the employer, uh, the employer money. So uh, the biggest risk, I think, before I answer the question is make sure this plan is covered by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp. That's kind of like FDIC insurance for Mm -hmm. a bank. That's if the plan fails, is somebody going to make payments to me or is that money gone? And if it's covered by the PBGC, yeah, look at it. It may may be worthwhile for you to stay in because, okay, the, the company fails. I still get the money from PBGC, and I know several employers that went bust here in Cincinnati, and uh, the uh, former employees still get their pensions from the PBGC, didn't miss, uh, didn't miss a beat. So, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's one thing. Um, if they give you the option of moving out of it and taking a lump sum distribution, think real hard about that. Most people in my industry, they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's the only thing you should do because they make a lot of money by convincing you to do it. But take a hard look at the pros and cons and whether or not you want that responsibility of, of handling that money either yourself or with an advisor. But if it's an option, certainly look into it. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we crack open the Allworth mailbag. These are the questions you send us every week at asksimplymoney at allworthfinancial.com. Next question comes from Andrea and Loveland. With the Fed promising to hike interest rates next year, should I wait to buy more bonds? And Steve, we know that Andrea is 54. 
$250,000 in savings. She's married. She is expecting Social Security. Uh, and she's got 80% of her investments right now in stocks and 20% in bonds. <laughs> That's, I think the first question I, I, I would ask, Andrea, is 80% stock? Really? Okay. I, I'm okay with that if you're okay with that, but that's that's going to have some volatility to it. Um, you may want to rethink you know, your, your ratios and, and so how much dial, that account goes up and down. dial back how much she has to. exposed to stocks right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but let, let's talk a little bit about interest rates. I, I mean, they're paying nothing. You know, and, and yeah. you you can call it bonds, but you can also call it CDs or, or money market accounts or savings accounts. The interest rates are really low. And I think what she's really asking is, if I buy a bond today and interest rates go up, did I just lose value on that bond? Because it is kind of a teeter-totter. Interest mm-hmm. rates go up, the value of your bond goes down. And, and when you think about it, uh, Amy, it, it kind of makes sense. I, I mean, if you buy a bond that comes due in 10 years, or, or CD, you know, uh, think of it that way. But if you buy a bond that comes due in 10 years that pays 2% and interest rates go to 3%, why does anybody want your bond if they can go out and get 3 So right. they're not going to offer you what you get back. If you sell... If you don't sell, you get your principal back. That's what a bond does. You get your money back on the due date, regardless of where interest rates went. So you're really talking about, am I worried about what interest rates are going to do to the value of my bond if I want to sell it sometime in the near future? You know, and and you don't have to sell if you're buying individual bonds. You could just hold them till they come due. So the answer to her question is, should I buy more bonds? She probably should reallocate in her 401k. Is she going to take... And, and reduce her stock exposure. But Andrea, you know, would you go out and buy bonds right now? I wouldn't lock my money up in a two or three or a four year CD. So why yeah. would I buy a two or a three or a four year bond? You know, I would rather stay liquid and when the interest rates go higher by then. Well, keep in mind what bonds are supposed to do in your portfolio, right? They're shock absorbers. They're not supposed to be for growth. It is when the market tanks, when the stock market tanks, that you're glad you have them. You know, so many of you during this pandemic have thought, what would it be like, right, to quit going to work nine to five, working for the boss? What if I just took off on my own? I've got this passion. I've got this hobby. I've got this thing that I want to do. But what does it really take? What does it take to be an entrepreneur? Joining us tonight with some great perspective on that is Carla Messer. She's the chief results officer at BestWork. She's also an assistant professor in the School of Business and Economics at Indiana University East, our expert on these things. Uh, Carla, I'm sure that a lot of us have big ideas, right, about what we could do. But let's, let's rein this in to figure out if this is something that we would really be good at, right? Entrepreneur. Uh, what do we need to know? Yeah, Amy, this is an important question because I think in the heart of it, everybody dreams about being their own boss. They yep. really fantasize about this idea of, of being able to call the shots. But the truth of the matter is, is that some of us are more equipped to be entrepreneurs or self-employed than others of us are. And in fact, there are eight essential traits that can be correlated to entrepreneurial success. So if you're one of the 4.4 million people who did make the move already, we can talk about some of those traits that are going to lead to your success and what things might also possibly stand in your way of success. Yeah, and for anyone who's thinking about possibly doing it, right, do you make the leap or not, pay close attention here. Do these eight things sound like they're very much in line with who you are at your core, or are they a stretch, right? I mean, I think we all look at what the boss does, and we say, like, I could do that better, right, whatever that thing is. But tell us what these eight traits are, Carla, that can help us determine whether or not we would be good at kind of going out on our own. 
Sure. And, you know, to begin with, these are essential traits or behaviors that are shared by top performers in the role of entrepreneur. So to begin with, it's probably not a surprise, is this uh, affinity for or enjoyment of being authoritative, that desire for making decisions and the willingness to accept that decision-making authority. If you're going to be in that boss role, it's critical that you are willing and able to make good decisions. And that goes right along with number two, which is taking initiative. And if you're a person that um, struggles sometimes to get started on some things, um, that could be a challenge if you don't have a high degree of taking initiative. Also, not surprising, rounding out the top three is wanting autonomy. Just give me the freedom and independence Mm. from authority because I want that authority as a leader, as a a um, self-employed entrepreneur. Now, some of the the bottom four round out um, some other traits and abilities that you you could imagine would be really necessary for somebody who's going to be a self-starter, and that is this tendency to be eager or excited about our goals, enthusiastic, and if you've ever met an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, uh, they can be very enthusiastic yeah. about their goal or product. Very or passionate. Service. So that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Because you have to believe in what you're doing. Um, but then I also think about the fact that, like, I, you know, I think a lot of us have lots of big ideas, but I've talked to people who've gone out on their own, and what they've, what they've also realized is you have to do all the things, right? One of the things about working for someone is there's other people who do the other things, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the financial aspect of it that you're not good at or whatever it is. So, so are there any traits in there about, you know, also being kind of detail-oriented and making sure that you can cover everything that would it entail to kind of go out? on your own? Mm, you nail it, Amy. The bottom three are being organized, maintaining order in an environment or situation, being persistent or pushing through, having mm. tenacity when you have an, you know, hit an obstacle. And also this uh, number eight, being analytical, this tendency to logically examine facts and situations. And that's really important because the traits to avoid are uh, being blindly optimistic and being overly impulsive. And when we have that analytical skill or ability, we can really avoid those traits of maybe tending to focus a little bit on the benefits of a strategy without really being able to sufficiently analyze some of the potential difficulties or pitfalls of ideas that we think are great but may not play out if we haven't done that analytical research of it. I I love that point. I have a dear friend who you know, had all of these traits from day one. I've, and I've known him since high school. Uh, and he and his dad started a business together and it's grown to this huge corporation, multi, multi-million dollars. But the game changer for him, he said, was they hired someone in analytics because before that they were kind of going off of their gut. We think this is what people want. We think this is what people need. We think this is how people will respond. And once they started analyzing, uh, they had data to help them make that next decision. So having either someone on your team or that kind of mind or some kind of software or something to help you with that has to be critical. Oh, yeah. Great, great story, Amy, because, you know, we all have key success factors that are going to lead us to success, right? The things that are going to make or break our success in our in our small business and knowing the areas where we might have deficits, where it's not something that we even enjoy doing. It might be something we can do. We've been schooled or educated, trained on that, but it's just not something we enjoy doing. So therefore, we avoid it. And in that avoidance, we open ourselves up to potential pitfalls in our business where that could have some pretty derailing effects. 
You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55 Kerasi. We're joined by Carla Messer. She's the chief results officer at Best Work, also an assistant professor from the School of Business and Economics at Indiana University East. She's become our kind of expert and guru on all things job-related. As we talk about entrepreneurs tonight, Carla, is there anyone who kind of set out on their own and then has come to you maybe a few months in, a year or two in, and said, like, this just isn't working? And once you start talking through it, you're like, well, this is exactly your barrier. This is exactly the reason why. What tends to be kind of the common issue there? Yeah, you know, it's trite but true, but we hear all the time that the skills and the behaviors, the motivations that get us there, that start the business, aren't necessarily the ones that are going to help us to grow the business long term. Mm. And what we know about entrepreneurs is that when they're kicking off and starting their business, many of them are seeking information, uh, being really open and reflective, and that really can create sometimes this open reflectiveness, some inconsistency where then maybe can create a lack of clarity over the long term. And what has got us started in being very open to lots of ideas later on in the business can look like indecision. Similarly, when we are really permissive, because as entrepreneurs, sometimes we take whatever talent we can get, and whoever's willing to help us for stock or other types of options or benefits, we're more than willing to fold them into the business. And as a result of that, oftentimes we're a little bit permissive. We might be lacking in or avoiding accountability. So when we see this um, inconsistency paired with a permissiveness or lack of accountability, what happens is entrepreneurs do what they do best. They dig in. Mm. They dig in and they work and work and work because it has to get done. And they have self-sacrificing behaviors, which oftentimes leads to burnout and complete exhaustion as they try to do all parts of the business because that's the passion they started with. And unfortunately, just as you mentioned earlier, we have to be bringing other people into the fold in order to secure that success. Carla, I know that you do, you know, career coaching and, and things like that all the time. When you have someone that it, that's coming to you and, and they just keep coming back to this place of, you know, as they do research and as they figure out what their next steps are, I think I'm just ready to go out on my own. What do you tell them as far as their first steps? What are next steps if finally you've reached this place or come to this place where, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to be a self-starter here. I'm ready to go out on my own. What do you tell them they need to do first? Wow. Well, you know, first thing I think is is the most important is really to lay out a framework or a blueprint for success. You can call it a business plan, whatever you want, but um, this idea of being able to capture really your mission and vision and know what you want to accomplish in your business is always critical because we can have, you know, mission creep or vision creep as we go along in developing this business. And so first and foremost, really understanding that. And then, you know, as I have talked about these essential traits, I think it's critical for us to look at a higher level level, both at what am I trying to accomplish here in, in my business, and am I well-suited to actually go ahead and achieve that? And if and if I am well-suited, what, what other kinds of resources, people, um, funding, et cetera, am I going to need to be able to accomplish this? Because even if you're not perfectly wired to be an entrepreneur, we know that with the right combination of people and the right team, um, businesses can really thrive, even if you're not a perfect fit for being at the helm. So if any of this sounds like you, if you have these eight traits of, of being a self-starter or you have this passion kind of burning inside of you, great insights, great information tonight from Carla Messer. She's the chief results officer at BestWorks and also assistant professor at the School of Business and Economics at Indiana University East. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.
You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send this show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it too. At All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.